Have you ever become obsessed with something? I mean, some people are obsessed with Ohio State football, you know? I mean, people are nuts in Columbus. OH! See what I mean? See what I mean? It's Sunday morning. What are you doing talking about Ohio State football? Shame on you. Sometimes we get obsessed with things. Well, for quite some time, to be just absolutely honest with you, I have been obsessed with Isaiah 64. I mean, just obsessed. It is not unusual for this to be one of the first things I think about when I wake up in the morning. It's not unusual for this to be one of the last things I think about before I go to bed at night. This chapter has spoken to me in a way that few verses of Scripture through my 45 plus years of ministry have ever spoken to me. And I want to share with you the truth of Isaiah 64 because I believe that it's what our country needs. It's what I need. And I prayed all week that this is what you need as well. To find the context of Isaiah 64, we simply need to understand that God's people, the nation of Israel, are in an absolute mess when Isaiah penned these words. They had rebelled against God. They had turned from God's ways, even though they were God's chosen people, and for quite some time had been experiencing the severe judgment of God. Sound familiar? Does that sound like the condition of America today? If you look at the founding of our country, I understand that not all of our founding fathers were born-again Bible believers. It's true. Not all of our founding fathers were followers of Jesus Christ. Most of them were, but not all of them were. But all of them acknowledged the need for a creator God to establish a nation. And if you look at the founding fathers, if you look at our founding documents, if you look at the Declaration of Independence, if you look at the Constitution, the fingerprints of a sovereign God are everywhere in the founding of our country. And yet for many years now, we have been turning in a completely different direction and because of that, I do believe that God has removed much of his protective hand from us. We could debate all day whether we are under the judgment of God or whether he has simply removed his protection, but suffice it to say, we're in a mess. And we're in a mess because we have turned from God. So the context of Isaiah 64 is so incredibly applicable to the condition of America today. Isaiah begins this chapter with a plea. If you're taking notes, and I hope you will, that's the first point. The plea, and we find it in verses 1 through 3. Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence. As when the melting fire burneth, the fire causeth the waters to boil, to make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. When thou didst terrible things, which we looked not for, thou camest down, the mountains flowed down at thy presence. I want us to see several things about the plea first. First, the attitude 
What is the attitude of Isaiah when he makes this plea? He begins by saying, oh, isn't it interesting how many ways we can say, oh? You know, someone tells us something that they think is very important and we go, oh? So there is the O of indifference. You know, there is the O of the know-it-all. Oh. There is the O of the teenager. Ow! And my favorite, the O of the wife who does not believe what her husband just told her. Oh. I mean, two letters can mean so many different things, but here, here in Isaiah 64, Isaiah is brokenhearted. He is crushed. Isaiah is absolutely desperate because he realizes that unless God intervenes, unless God comes down, unless God does something, his nation, his people are doomed. And so he cries out, oh, God, he is saying, we need you, God. Have you ever come to God with that kind of attitude where you have realized That unless God shows up, unless God does something wonderful and miraculous, you are doomed. Oh, God, we need you. I wish that that's what was happening in America today. That Americans in unison would cry out to God. Instead, we're turning to politicians. There are so many people who believe the hope of America lies in November in the next election. Boy, do I have news for you. Listen, the hope of America is not in the next election. The hope of America is not in Washington, D.C. The hope of America is not in whoever sits in the White House. The hope of America is the intervention of a sovereign God into the affairs of this nation. And Isaiah is crying out, oh, oh God, we need you. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what's going on in your family. But I sense very strongly that there are several of you this morning, and that's the attitude of your heart. Oh, God, I need to hear from you. Oh, God. We need you so bad. That is the attitude. It is an attitude of agony and distress and pleading. But secondly, I see the altitude of his plea. The attitude, but the altitude. Where does he want this prayer to reach? He says, Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down. Now, you probably recognize that word rend and the concept of rending or being rent. It's very familiar in the New Testament. You remember the, the, the veil in the temple being rent from the top to the bottom? Now, we have no eyewitness testimony of what it was like when the, when the veil in the temple was rent when Jesus was being crucified. We don't have anyone describing it, but... I feel very strongly that if you and I had been there to witness it, it didn't happen quietly. 
I don't think that a few threads began unweaving up at the top and then just quietly and gently the veil just kind of came apart. I don't think so at all. I think it was violent. I think it was loud. I think it was dramatic because of what it represented. You see, there's a theme throughout the Old Testament. And the theme throughout the Old Testament is from a holy God, and he says, I'm holy, and you're not. I mean, you find that everywhere. When the tabernacle was constructed in the wilderness, the first thing you would see, you would come up to the tabernacle, and there was a big fence. Now, it was a linen fence, but it was a fence nonetheless. And that fence said to you when you came up, I'm holy and you're not. You can't come into the tabernacle unless you are one of my people. You had to be a Jew. Otherwise, you couldn't even enter. Now, if you were fortunate enough to be one of God's people, you could then enter into the tabernacle complex and you would see the laver and the altar and so forth. But the thing that would catch your attention was this large structure in the middle and there was a door. On the other side of that door was the holy place where the golden tabret or the golden candlestick and the showbread and the altar of incense was. And the door to that place said, I'm holy and you're not. You cannot enter in unless you are one of the priests. You can't come in unless you're a priest because I'm holy and you're not. Now, if you were fortunate enough to be one of the priests, you could go through that door into the holy place. And there again, you would see the table to show bread, the golden candlestick, and so forth. But your attention would be immediately drawn to the veil. And on the other side of the veil was the holy of holies. And that veil communicated an important message. I'm holy, and you're not. You cannot come into my presence because that's where the presence of God was in the Holy of Holies. And only one person could go into the Holy of Holies. And who was that? Come on, talk to me. No, not the priest. The high priest. The other guy. What translation are you reading? I like that, the other guy. It was the high priest. He was the only one that could go past the veil into the Holy of Holies. And how often could he go there? One time a year. When the temple was built in Jerusalem, when Solomon built the temple, it was basically the same floor plan. It was much, much more elaborate. It wasn't built out of cloth. It was built out of gold and silver and imported woods. But it said the same thing. I'm holy and you're not. You cannot come to me because you are an unholy people. Until. Until Jesus. And when Jesus gave himself as the ultimate sacrifice, something happened in the temple. The veil exploded. The veil exploded wide open and the message was no longer, I'm holy, you're not, stay out. The message is now, come. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. 
Hebrews chapter 4 says. We can come straight to the throne of grace. And not only can we come to the throne of grace, we can come boldly to the throne of grace because the veil in the temple was rent in two with power and majesty and victory. That is the concept Isaiah is talking about here in Isaiah 64.1. Oh, that thou wouldest rend, rip, not the veil, heaven. You see, the heavens had been closed. They had been praying for God to intervene. And it seemed that the heavens were brass. And it seems that God had forsaken them. It seemed that God had forgotten them. And Isaiah cries, Oh God, rend the heavens, rip them wide open. Isaiah did not want God just peeking over the edge of heaven. Isaiah didn't want just a tiny little glimpse of heaven. He didn't want just a tiny little bit of the power of God. He knew that they needed all of God and they needed Him now. And the only way that would happen is if the heavens were rent wide open. Now why have I become obsessed with this chapter? Because that's what I want, folks. I've been preaching now for 50 years. The beginning of this summer, I celebrated my 50th anniversary of preaching. I began preaching in a Skid Row mission in downtown Los Angeles 50 years ago. I've been in full-time church ministry for over 45. And I want to stand here before you this morning and I want to tell you, I don't want just some of God's power in my life and in my family. I want it all. I want to experience the power of God in my life and my ministry as I have never experienced it before. And I came across Isaiah 64, and as I read it, I thought, that's what I want! And so I've been praying now, every day, oh God, rip the heavens wide open. Rend the heavens. And I want you, I want you to come down. Is that what you want? Is that what you want for Fellowship Baptist Church? Rend the heavens and come down. You had 50 some kids except Christ as Savior last week. That is awesome. But shouldn't that just be the beginning? He wanted his prayer to reach heaven. Oh God, rend the heavens. Verse 2 it says, And when the melting fire burneth, the fire causeth the waters to boil, to make, to make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. That's what this church needs. That's what America needs. We need to hear from God. So the attitude of his plea, the altitude of his plea, but then the amplitude. What in the world does amplitude mean? 
We use it in radio a lot. It's a big fancy word, and it simply means greatness of size. Okay, so we know how he asked. We know where he asked. But what is he asking for? In essence, he's asking for the impossible. Verse 1 again. Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence. Verse 3. When thou didst terrible things, look at this, which we looked not for. We didn't expect it. We didn't anticipate it. Thou camest down, the mountains flowed down at thy presence. Folks, listen. Rivers flow. Creeks flow. Mountains do not flow. Except in a few rare instances. If you look through the history of this planet, you will actually find a few times when a very large mountain was shaken with such violent force because of an earthquake. I mean an earthquake off the end of the scale on the Richter scale. It's only happened a few times in history. But the shaking, the earthquake was so violent that a mountain made of soil and rock literally was liquefied and it flowed down and it no longer existed. So in other words, this thing of a mountain Flowing down does not happen unless there is enormous, incredible power. Unless there is a shaking beyond even our imagination. Why am I drawn to this chapter? Because I've got some mountains. I do. And I would imagine that some of you have mountains as well. A mountain is something that is impossible for you to handle in your strength. A mountain is something that cannot be removed and it cannot move unless it happens by the power of God himself. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many of you right now have some mountains? You got the prodigal child? You got a mountain in your marriage? You got a mountain in your finances? You just went to the doctor this last week and you got a mountain in your health? Here's what encourages me. It says in verses 1 through 3, or it implies that he had done it before. Look at verse 3. When thou didst terrible things which we looked not for. They didn't expect it. Thou camest down. Isaiah is saying, Lord, you've done this before. Lord, there have been times that you have healed our nation. Lord, there have been times that you have sent a revival that shook our nation to its very core. Lord, there have been times that the power of your Spirit came down with such force that as a nation we fell on our knees and we sensed and felt a shaking of your Holy Spirit and mountains were liquefied and flowed away. And here's what Isaiah is saying. 
You did it before. You can do it again. And that's why I'm encouraged by Isaiah 64. You see, I've had mountains before. My family has had mountains before. About 25 years ago, my family was about as dysfunctional as a family could be, and I was trying to pastor in Westerville. My wife and I were on the verge of divorce. And then God came down. The heavens were ripped open, and there was a mighty shaking, and the mountain of divorce and dysfunction flowed into the sea. And I know if God did it before, he can do it again. Now let me ask you a question. You're facing a financial mountain in your family. Has God ever shaken a financial mountain so, so strong that it flowed away? Did he ever do that with any family? Can you say amen? amen. Then he can do it again. Has God ever taken a dysfunctional family and healed it by his power? Has he ever done that? Then he can do it again. He can do it again. Has God ever taken a church and brought such powerful revival that that church was shaken to its very soul? And that church reached an entire community for Jesus Christ. Has that ever happened before? Then it can happen again. And I believe, Pastor, it can happen at Fellowship Baptist Church. I believe that. And that's why I want the heavens to be rent open. And that's why I'm praying that God will take my mountains and shake them so severely that they will flow into the sea. So we've seen the plea, the attitude, the altitude, the amplitude, but then the second point in the message is there's a problem. The problem we find it in verses 4 to 7. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for thee. Thou meetest him that rejoiceth and worketh righteousness. Those that remember thee in thy ways, behold, thou art wroth. For we have sinned in those in, in those is continuance, and we shall be saved. But, but, but we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away, and there is none that calleth upon thy name that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. For thou hast hid thy face from us and hast consumed us because of our iniquities. There was a problem And the problem was sin. Since the beginning of the human race, this has been the problem. This is what has separated us from our God and us. It is sin. It began in the Garden of Eden and it has continued. Sin 
stops the power of God. Sin destroys communion with God. It's the word that no one wants to talk about today. It's the S word. It's sin. We don't want to talk about repentance. We don't want to talk about sin. But it is a theme. It is a theme all through Scripture because, folks, listen. I believe God wants to come down. Why wouldn't He? He created us for fellowship, right? Why wouldn't God want to come down and bring a revival to a church like this? Why wouldn't He? He sent Jesus to die on the cross so that we might be in a right relationship with God. Of course God wants to come down, but Isaiah nails the problem here. It is sin that keeps the power of God from coming to our churches and coming to our families and coming to our marriages. I told you about 25 years ago when my marriage almost ended in divorce. Let me tell you something. It was because of sin. My wife. No, it was primarily my sin. I wasn't living in terrible, horrible evil. I wasn't hooked on pornography. I wasn't seeing another woman. I was just proud. And my pride almost destroyed my wife. I was proud of who I was. I was proud that I was a pastor. I was proud of my ministry. I was, a pro- I was proud of my life. I was proud about everything. And God had to come and crush me and break me and strip me of all my pride so that I would repent and then healing began. We love to quote Second Chronicles 7.14. In fact, I think I preached it here. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray. It's interesting because when that was written, the nation of Israel was surrounded by a bunch of pagan heathen people. And God kind of ignored all those pagans and those heathens And he said, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from from heaven and heal their land and so forth. There was a problem in Israel, and the problem was sin. I told you that I want the heavens to be rent open for me I want to know the power of God in a new, fresh way, more than I've ever experienced in my life, then I must realize that every day I must ask God, oh God, reveal to me my flesh, reveal to me my pride, reveal to me my self-sufficiency, oh God, reveal to me my sin. I must keep short accounts with God. And maybe this morning, there is some sin that you've been holding on to that you just can't let go of. You just refuse to repent of. And you blame it on your wife. You blame it on your husband. You blame it on your kids. You blame it on the circumstances. Well, it's just the way I was raised. It's just my personality. Or any other a thousand rationalizations of why we rationalize sin in our own life. Maybe it's not some sinful, horrible habit. Maybe it's an attitude. Maybe you struggle with bitterness. Maybe you struggle with jealousy and envy. 
Maybe you're envious of other people, their job, their position, or whatever. Maybe you're bitter against someone else in this church. Maybe someone has hurt you and harmed you, and you have refused to forgive them. And that sin is keeping the heavens from being rent and God coming down and shaking your mountains. That was the problem for the nation of Israel. It was sin. But then third, I see the promise. I see the promise in verses 8 and 9. But now, Lord, thou art our father. Now, to you and I, that's no big deal. You know, Almost all the prayers in the New Testament begin with my Father, our Father. Jesus taught the disciples, pray like this, our Father. Hey, for us, that's not a big deal. But for the nation of Israel, that was a big deal. The Holy Spirit was not an internal resident in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit would come. The Holy Spirit would go. And for Isaiah to realize that God was their father was a powerful truth. But now, Lord, thou art our father. We are the clay and thou our potter. And we are all the work of thy hand. Be not wroth very sore, O Lord. Neither remember iniquity forever. Behold, see, we beseech thee. We are all thy people. That's the promise. When we do repent when we do humble ourselves, when we do plead with God to come down, He does. When we ask God to forgive us, He does. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is the promise. I believe that God wants to pour out his power, but he is waiting for us. And here's the last point, the predicament. This chapter does not end the way that I would have written it. All right? Look at verses 10 to 12. We see the predicament. Thy holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem a desolation. I mean, not only were they in a spiritual mess, they were in a physical mess. The city of Jerusalem was in in ruins. They had been overrun by their enemies. And Isaiah looks around and says, Thy holy cities are a wilderness, Zion is a wilderness, Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and our beautiful house where our fathers praise thee is burned up with fire. That was the temple. And all our pleasant things are laid waste. And look how the chapter ends. Wilt thou refrain thyself for these things, O Lord? Wilt thou hold thy peace and afflict us very sore? And it ends with a question mark. What a strange way to end this chapter. That's not the way I would have written it. Let me tell you how I would have written it. I would have ended the chapter and the children of Israel repented of their sins. God came down. They, were, they had a revival and they all lived. Come on. And they all lived. That's how I would have ended the chapter. Wouldn't that be great? But that's not how he ends it. He ends it with a question. And here's why. The end of the chapter was not dependent upon God. It was dependent upon their response. He wanted to come down. 
He wanted to heal them. He wanted to revive them. But he was waiting to see how they would respond. He was waiting to see if they would call out. He was waiting to see if they would repent. And so the chapter ends with a question mark. And this morning, I end my message with a question mark. Where are you? I believe that many times God is just waiting for us to cry out. Remember over in Mark's Gospel, chapter 6? You don't need to turn there. But it was one of the stories of the disciples out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And the big storm comes up. And they're rowing like crazy and they're bailing out the water and they just know they're going to die. They're out there, we're all going to die. And they're rowing like crazy. And that's the time when Jesus comes walking to them on the water. Remember that? And this is really weird. It says, and he would have passed by. Say what? He comes walking to them on the water. They think they're going to die. They think they're going to sink and drown. And Jesus comes walking and it says, and he would have passed by. He was going to just keep right on walking by the boat until they cried out. You see, before that, they were trying to save themselves. They were rowing like crazy. Some of those were seasoned sailors. And they were saying, we can do it. It's tough. It's really tough. But we can do it. Until they realized they couldn't do it and they were going to die. And they saw the master walking and they cried out to him. And that's all he was waiting for. He was waiting for them to cry. And he comes and he touches the boat and the storm ceases. Remember in Luke chapter 24, the road to Emmaus? Those two disciples, we know the name of one, but we don't know the name of the other one. They are confused. Some of the disciples said that they had seen Jesus. The women had said they had seen Jesus after the resurrection, but they didn't know what to believe. And they said, let's take a walk. And so they hike over to Emmaus, which is about seven and a half miles from Jerusalem. And they're walking along, and all of a sudden Jesus joins them. And they don't know who he is. And it's hysterical. It really is. Because they're really troubled. And Jesus says, hey, what's the problem? And they say, what's the problem? What, what, what? Haven't you heard what's in Ju- what happened in Jerusalem? They're talking about Jesus. And Jesus says, oh, something happened in Jerusalem? Seriously, go home and read it. It's in Luke 24. And Jesus preaches to them as they're walking on the way to Emmaus. And he goes from the Old Testament through the entire Old Testament. He shares himself. He reveals himself through the entire Old Testament. And they still don't know who he is. And they finally get to where they were going. And they were going to turn into an inn to stay and to eat. And the Word of God says in Luke 24, and Jesus would have kept going. He would have just kept walking and lived from there. They still didn't even know who he was until... Those two disciples says, no, no, wait, no, we want to hear more. Please don't leave. Please come eat with us. Come. They cried out to him. And he turned into them. And as they broke bread, he revealed himself to them. He was waiting for them to cry out. I'm out of time, but there are several other illustrations in the New Testament as well. When Jesus was just waiting for someone to cry out. That's what he was waiting for, for the nation of Israel. He wanted to come down. He wanted to rend the heavens. 
But the chapter ends with a question. He was waiting to see if they would cry out. Maybe you've been trying to do it yourself. You've been trying to handle the family issues in your own strength, your own wisdom. And maybe this morning, the God of the universe is just waiting for you to go, Oh God, I need you here now. Come down, rend the heavens. I've got mountains, God, and I can't handle them in my strength. You've done it before. Come down today.